You may be seated, and as you do, please meet me in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John, or the Gospels. If you get to Acts or Romans, go back to the left. John chapter 15, we'll make a home in verses 12 through 17. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square, rest or Sabbath. Um, and I could probably hang out here another couple of months. Um, but you know, we've got like seven more years in Romans to get to. So this has been just a nice, nice respite, if you will, from, from that time. But today we're concluding that uh, teaching or that short study on rest from John 15. Um, and for the past three weeks, we've considered like to abide in the love uh, of God. And I trust they've been helpful. They, they've certainly helped to shape my Sabbath. When I take Friday off, I've been very mindful of some of the things we've been walking through and trying to focus on one of the many things that I think the Lord has been teaching me, teaching us through um, not only this uh, chapter in John, but also from Marva Don's book that we've been looking at together, Keeping the Sabbath Holy. And so I hope that it's been uh, helpful. If for nothing else, than to just be a really good reminder that you need to take a break, right? That you by God, have been commissioned and called and commanded to take 24 hours off at least once a week for your joy and the joy of everyone in your community, right? This has been such a good word. If nothing else, right, I hope that this has been really, really clear, that you have been designed to rest. You don't work well. You don't work at all without having this disposition of what Jesus calls abiding, of resting, of Sabbath that he's, been called, he's called us from the beginning of creation to have. And so from John 15, we've considered what it means to cease from chasing after worldly gains. We then looked at uh, how we can rest in God's love. Like, what does that even mean? Really nice thought, but what does it mean to rest in God's love? And then last week we considered what does it mean or what does it look like? How do we feast on joy? And three practices then, ceasing, resting, and feasting. And they all sort of work together. They collaborate, if you will. We're not just stopping stuff. We're also not just feasting on stuff. And we're not just resting. There is this rhythm and ritual, if you will, of all of these things. And today we'll conclude by adding a fourth discipline or practice called embracing. And what exactly are we going to learn to embrace? Well, being, your identity, our identity, who we are as opposed to what we do or what we accomplish or what's happened or happening to us. See, Sabbath is a day to embrace simply being. This is a vital discipline for our Sabbath rest because much of our week is spent, isn't it, doing, achieving, accomplishing, performing, finishing one thing and going, all right, what's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? Embracing is a way of looking in our interior, our inward life, pausing, reflecting, and remembering who we actually are. Once a week, we're invited to cease those things specifically in order to embrace our being. See, Jesus closes this portion of thought by explaining just that, who we are. He calls us here that if you have been trying spiritual formation or on a spiritual journey, I would like to consider, I'd like to offer to you or submit to you, this is one of the only traditions where the Son of the living God or God himself calls you a friend. A friend. This is what Jesus does in John chapter 15, and that's what I'd like to talk about today. I want to talk about how friendship with Jesus helps us embrace who we are, how friendship with Jesus helps us to embrace our being, embracing who we are. And I want to, I want to talk, in other words, about how divine friendship invites us into abiding and into resting. 
and how without understanding that we are called a friend of God that we can't rest. As usual, we'll follow Jesus' flow of thought from John 15, so here's how we'll organize our time. We'll talk about being freed, being friend, and then we'll talk about being loved because there wasn't a good third F to come up with, but uh, being freed, being friend, and being loved. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we need your help as always because when we open up your word, we're going to make a mess of it if it's just about, well, this is what it feels like this means to me. But when you do what you do, which is you promise that by your Holy Spirit, you'll shine brightly through the scriptures and say, here's the truth and beauty of who I am. Here's what I'm like. Here's what I'm calling you to. Here's who you are. When you speak to us like that, we get changed on the spot. We don't just have plans to obey tomorrow. We don't just have a really good spiritual formation plan to uh, execute through the week what we have as a new heart and a new mind. And so, Father, I need that this morning. My sisters and my brothers need that this morning. And what a joy it is to know that what we need, you freely and joyfully supply. You're just that good. And so we ask for your peace. We ask, Father, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see so that we might live as the new creation you have formed us to be as we see your kingdom come and your will be done in Logan Square in the northwest side of the city and all over the city and world. And we pray that it would be for the sake of the gospel and the glory. Jesus has been using this elongated illustration. He's been talking about abiding in relationship with him like branches, he says, abiding in the vine. This is the way his disciples bear fruit. That means it's the way our lives produce the fruit of the Spirit, which is what? Love and self-control, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. He says that all of these things blossom from a heart that is deeply rooted in the Word and the presence of the Lord. The verse that holds all of this together for us is John 15, verse 9. So if you've already opened John 15, look at verse 9. This is the center, if you will, of what Jesus is talking about here in John 15. And it says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in my love. Abiding is about God's love. Abiding is about submission. Abiding is about rest. Additionally, I think this illustration or teaching is historically anchored in the commandment of Sabbath rest. This is what we've been considering the past month, how we ought to view a weekly day of rest in order to foster a restful character within ourselves, resting in the love of God. And I hope you have also been cognizant of the fact that there is yet, the world has really yet to see a church that is really at rest. We look like we're just as anxious as everybody else, just as frazzled, just as much believing the lie that our our holiness comes through hustle, right? Can you even imagine if we were a community that was always rested and totally available instead of crazy, busy, and tired, right? If our friends checked in with us, our neighbors checked in with us, right? This is the vision that I think abiding sort of gives the people of God. Can you imagine, it might be a little cheeky and corny, but your neighbor is like, hey, what's going on this week? I was thinking about, well, I'm totally rested and completely available. What is it that I can do for you instead of crazy, busy, and wild? I don't even know what to tell you, you know, my kids, my job, and all of this, you know? It's like the new morality of the day is that we're trying to out-hustle everyone and out-tired everyone, believing that our sort of moral holiness is based upon is something that we often think, right? 
I think they're available. I think this is what the television show, right? Without three screens in between them and the wall. I think this is what the Lord is communicating to us. What if we were a people who were actually at rest? Jesus now turns to that character change, I think, here in John 15. He says that we who were slaves or servants, and I'll use those words interchangeably because I think that word in the original language is doulos, so it goes back and forth between being translated as slaves or servants. And they have now, Jesus says, have been freed to friendship. Here's what John 15 verse 12 says. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father. I have made known to you. Now, now Jesus says a lot here. First, there is this central and controlling command uh, to love one another. And biblical scholar D.A. Carson says that all the commands of Jesus that he has laid out, particularly back in verse 10, is summarized now, or rather subsumed, he says, under one command. Love each other as I have loved you. In other words, you might have been like, Jesus, it just seems like you keep listing a bunch of things that we're supposed to do. The Ten Commandments was helpful, but it looks like there's hundreds of things that you've called us to do throughout the scriptures. And he sort of summarizes everything here. Love one another. Of other things come underneath that umbrella. Like you've got to be patient to love one another. You've got to be faithful to love one another. You've got to be humble to love one another. And in many respects, you need to honor God and no one else in order to truly love one another as God has loved you. In other words, loving others is ultimately the fruit of a life that is abiding in Jesus. So when you see someone that's actually loving you and taking care of their neighbors and taking care of their brothers and sisters, that person must be abiding. Because I don't know that I have what it takes to do what they're doing. I need, I need to start there. See, religion says start acting like them. And the gospel says start being centered or rather embracing the love with which you have been, been loved. That's the truest thing about you. And the truest calling then that you have out of that, here's what Jesus is saying. The truest calling that you have out of that is to love those around you. It's to love the people with whom God has providentially put in your community and in your week from day in to day out. We'll take some time to unpack that a little bit more in a bit, but it's necessary to acknowledge the reality from that reality from the outset because I think Jesus does. In fact, his first thought and his last thought in this passage are the same. Love one another. But what we have to focus on first is this change of character, or change of being that he is highlighting. See, though the love of God and the action of his love are primary, in the background there's this transformative process that is taking place as a result of God's love. Look at it again. Jesus says in verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends. Jesus calls you friends. He calls us his friends. However, he is quick to remind us that we haven't always been friends. Notice in verse 15, what does he say? No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. Jesus calls us friends, but he used to call us servants. And what's that mean? What does it mean that we were servants? What were we enslaved to? Or how can we, or how can he say that we are no longer servants? So what has actually taken place? Well, the scriptures teach us a great deal about our status or our being before salvation. And I, I do think that's what Jesus has in mind here. This is what he's talking about. I think he's talking about salvation or if you, or if you please, like the inclusion into his kingdom people. See, servitude precedes salvation. 
Friendship is a gift of salvation, or to put it in the language of Jesus' metaphors, metaphor, rather, servants don't abide, friends do. Servants don't abide in the love of Jesus, but friends do. See, servants are those who don't abide because they are enslaved to something. A few things I think that we can pull from this. First, when we don't abide, we are slaves to sin. We considered this a few months ago from Romans 6. It says that, For when we were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from slave to sin is actually freedom from righteousness because in sin we can't and are not compelled to obey God. And so as a result, we don't bear fruit. Practically, we repeat sinful behavior and self-concepts of sin or that are riddled in shame prevail in our hearts, which are not grounded in the truth of God's word nor empowered by his love. So when we are not abiding, we are enslaved to sin. But also when we don't abide, we are slaves to earthly powers. See, at the end of his letter to the church in first century Ephesus, Paul said this, he reminded them, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, many of us are pretty pragmatic, and these sorts of passages are lost on us. But the reality of sin and the reality of all of the teachings of the scriptures is there is this cosmic reality that you and I are a part of, this spiritual realm that you and I are a part of. And without Jesus, our being is bound up in these cosmic powers of our present age. We are enslaved to things like greed and power and celebrityism and vanity and sexual idolatry and even demonic and oppressive powers which wage war against our souls. This is what we're enslaved to. And when you're enslaved to those things, you don't abide. And when you don't abide, you continue to be enslaved to these things. I also think that when we don't abide, we are enslaved to religion, which might sound a little bit unexpected. But without Jesus, we are what Paul tells the Galatians, still under the law. We're slaves to religion. Galatians 4 says that, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This means that when we don't abide, we are enslaved to a religious mentality that tells us that the more we obey, the more we are loved. And that is a sliding scale of your performance. Can I get an amen? That means that if you had a good week last week, he doesn't love you more than this week that has not been very good, right? His love is not in light of your performance. It's in light of his love. We've, co we've considered this, this series that God loves you because God loves you. It's this brilliantly annoying and wonderful cyclical kind of logic, which can't be, you can't do away with it. When he loves you, he loves you. Why? Because he loves you. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. See, in essence, spiritual slavery rather means that we don't abide because we are enslaved to this religious mentality believing that the more good we do, the holier we become. But this, if you, if you pay attention to it, those who abide by this methodology, it breeds within them judgment and jealousy all the time. It doesn't breed resting. If you think you've got to constantly hustle for your holiness, you don't rest. You don't go, wow, God loves me so much now, I can rest in this. No, you judge others for not being as holy as you, right? And you are jealous of others that seem to have more than you, more of God's love than you. 
See, in essence, spiritual slavery or servitude is knowing the commands of Jesus, but lacking the power, the desire, and understanding to obey those commands. See, spiritual slavery is an inability to abide. So what Jesus is saying then is that in him, by his blood, you are freed to abide. Why? Because he has freed you from sin. He has freed you from the earthly powers, and he has freed you from religion. Therefore, we are freed to be his, freed to be loved, freed to be his friend. See, when we acknowledge the slavery and the servitude that we're in the middle of, we begin to get a picture of what friendship with him really looks like. But before we consider what it means to be his friend, we have to understand how we even became his friends. How did those who were slaves to sin and earthly powers and religion become friends of Jesus? In other words, how did you become his friend? How did I? This is saying to his disciples in the first century, he is saying to us by way of the power of his Jesus tells us how a thousand years later, which is really good news, by the way, that he is speaking to us. Jesus tells us how this happened. Look at John 15, verse 15 again. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant, hear this, does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Notice the difference between a friend and a servant is revelation. It's knowledge. It's understanding. It's insight into the master's work. Jesus explains that a slave or a servant does not know what his master is doing, but a friend does. To be a slave is to know the commands of the master, but to be friends is to know the heart, the motivation, the plans, the purposes of the master. In other words, spiritual slavery is about ignorance, and divine friendship is about revelation. It's about what the Lord has revealed and shown you. A brief aside for your joy and mine. It's critical we understand something about what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, I'm your friend. He says, you are my friend. Why? The Father and the Son actually never give themselves this distinction. They never give themselves the distinction as a friend. There is, of course, the time in Luke 7 when Jesus quotes his reputation. Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's a pretty popular verse. There's actually songs written about that verse, believe it or not. It's a good verse. Jesus, in fact, redeems it. And people are not glowing in their review of Jesus when they're saying this. Now, why is that important? Because friendship is mutual. Friendship is an egalitarian relationship. But God is always our Lord. This is really important, I think, critical for many of us in this day and age to understand. Remember back in the day, the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts. Love them. Hilarious. Really awesome to have. Should feel no shame for having one of those. But behind the scenes, what that began to teach many of us, how that began to disciple us, is that Jesus is simply my friend, and he is my friend, and I am his. And it's a peer-based relationship that we both have a similar relationship to the quality. That is not what the scriptures teach. Friendship conveys mutuality, this equality, but Jesus is always our superior. This is one of the reasons we still, as 20, 30, 40, 50, 60-year-old people, have a really hard time with obedience. Did you know that obedience is not just a lesson for children? It's a lesson for all of us. This is why many of us have a hard time with this. Well, I'm just a friend of God. I sang that song, and we're, like, we're good, like me and him. Right? But no, Jesus does not say he is your friend. He says that you are are his. So though we are friends and though he is friendly, he is always our master. He is still our master. He is still our Lord. 
It doesn't mean he's not kind. It doesn't mean he's not loving. It doesn't mean that he doesn't bestow upon us incredible compassion and empathy and love. It means that all of those things come within the context of his lordship. See, what Jesus is getting at is that friendship with God does not negate his lordship. We are his friends. This aside and nuance is important because if Jesus is our friend, it would contradict the point in the preceding passage. Remember, joy comes through obedience. It comes through submission. Our feasting on joy is about feasting on the word of God and obeying it. That's why Jesus goes on to say in verse 14, you are my friends if what? You do what I command you. Now, if you've got a human friendship, they should not be saying do what I command you right? That's how I know you're really my friend. Do what I say. That's an abusive relationship. Get out now. That's not okay. Who is king? But if the Savior and Lord of the universe, who is master, who is king, who rules and reigns over everything, says, you are my friends if you do what I command, he's communicating a very unique relationship where you are his friend and he is your Lord and the two commingle, if you will, in such a unique way. So we must understand that the true nature of friendship with God is so that we do not grow casual with his holiness or flippant towards his commands. This is why it's so interesting how Jesus explains the nature of divine friendship. It's not passive. It's not mutual. It's not not ignorant, though, either. It's revelry is it that we now know. What specific knowledge moves us from servitude or from servant to friend? Jesus says he has told his friends what he is doing. And that he has told his friends all that he has heard from his, his father. So what exactly does that mean? Well, Jesus actually explains a lot of what he has told his friends in John chapter 17 in what's called the high priestly prayer. So why don't you meet me there? John chapter 17, just two chapters to the right. What do friends know about their master? Well, first and foremost... Friends know the master's true nature. Friends know the master's true nature. See, Jesus is praying this uh, moment uh, before, just moments before his crucifixion. So his mind is on the cross. His mind is on his friends, those whom he is about to save. And he says, John 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you praying to his Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, in other words, me, whom you have sent. So Jesus explained the nature of the Father, that he is the only true God. He explained the nature of the Son, that he is Jesus Christ, sent from the Father. That's what friends know. They know who God is. They know his nature. Church, if you know God, that's amazing. If you know who he is, he has shown you that. You didn't figure that out. I didn't figure that out. This is a grace. I get so puffed up, don't we? Or don't I? Even growing up in the church, believing that we are entitled to know who he is, and we are not. It is a gift of his grace and of his love. And to know him is to be his friend. Secondly, what else do we know about the master? We know his true character. We not only know the master's true nature, but we know the master's true character as his friends. Later in the same prayer, Jesus gives us more insight into the knowledge that he's revealed to his friends. Look at verse 23, the latter half of 23. John chapter 17. Even as you loved me. Now, I just want to make a promise. Someday we will preach an entire series on even as. 
those two words because a cosmic value of information is pumped into those two words. He is equating the way that the Heavenly Father loved them is the way the Heavenly Father loved us, which we don't have time to under, un- unpack today, um, but hold me to that. What we ought to see, though, is that there is this nature of the master, who he is, and there is also the character of the master, what he is like. So what's he like? What does Jesus say? He's love. He's loving. A servant doesn't know the depth of this reality. Why? Because a servant-master orientation is a task-oriented relationship. A friend relationship is a heart-oriented relationship. You know the master's heart. You don't just know who he is, you know what he is like. Thirdly, I think what Jesus explains in John 17 is that we know the master's true purpose. About halfway through the prayer, Jesus makes a connection between his mission and the reason he came to earth and the purpose he has for his friends, for his people. Look at John 17, verse 17 through 19. It says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. There seems to be a couple of things that Jesus has in mind for his friends to know about the master's purpose. He wants to sanctify his friends. He wants to make them holy. So if you feel like you are growing in holiness, you can can be assured this is the work that Jesus does for his friends. This is what he does for his friends. He doesn't leave his friends alone and just go, that's enough. You're mature enough. You're loving enough. You got it right once out of 10. That's good. We receive that. That's good enough to get past the exam, right? No, he continually sanctifies us to make us more and more like himself, to work on his friends, to make them holy, even as he is holy. But not only that, he also sends them into the world for the sake of the world, for the good of the world, to share the knowledge which, that he has entrusted to them. So if you feel like you keep bumping into people who need to be loved, it's because that's where Jesus puts his friends. Jesus constantly is going to put his friends in positions to love their neighbors as themselves. Why? Because that's what he has commanded us to do. And that's what he has done for us. You're picking up what Jesus is throwing down. This is a unique kind of friendship. It's not just mutual. It's, it's not just about equality with one another. We're not on the same plane. He, our master, we, his friends. And so what is Jesus getting at? Slaves or servants know commands. Friends know the master right? Servants know what the master wants from them. Friends know the master's heart. They know his character. They know his purposes. So spiritual slavery or servitude is simply about knowing the word of God, but lacking the power, ability, desire, understanding to obey. Spiritual slavery lacks the ability to abide. Divine friendship then is about revelation. It's about knowing the nature, character, and purpose of the master. This knowledge not only empowers you and compels you to obey, but it also enables you to really rest. Why? Because you know that the master's love is not contingent upon you completing the task, because you know his heart. You know his heart. As we mentioned, Jesus begins and ends this passage in the same place, with love. So looking at what we've been compels us to love one another, Look at the starting and ending place of this passage with me. Look at verse 13, then we'll skip ahead to 17. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then to 17, these things I command you, why? So that you will love one another. Repetition in the Bible, especially with Jesus, is not because he forgot. He didn't forget, he already said that. He wants to make sure that we heard it. 
and he wants to contextualize everything that he has said in the middle with the command at the front and the end that is exactly the same with his main theme, love one another. You see, divine friendship enables you to love the people around you. If you are having a hard time loving somebody, what you and I need is a reminder of how we have been loved. We don't need to work harder. We don't need to figure out why they're a unique snowflake that is really deserving of our love. Maybe that's true. I don't know. But ultimately, what we need is a fresh reminder of how we have been loved. There is no more powerful agent, change agent, for us to love our neighbor as ourself than remembering how loved we are and how we have been loved. It's sacrificial. It's vulnerable. It reveals nature and character and purpose. It's transformative. It's selfless kind of love. It frees from sin. It doesn't dabble in shame or earthly power or religion. Being loved causes you to love. Being loved like Jesus has loved us compels us to love other people the way that Jesus has loved us. This is where and how our practice of Sabbath now comes into focus. See, Jesus has freed us by love to love. Specifically, Marvadon, who has been a, our spiritual guide through this series, identifies seven ways we're freed by love, by the love of Jesus in her book, Keeping the Sabbath Holy. Each of these freedoms contributes to our invitation to rest, to truly cultivate a disposition of rest. Remember, we only rest when we're safe. We only rest when we're friends. We only rest when we're free. We only rest when we actually know and trust the master, not just his commands. Don says that we've been freed to embrace intentionality, community, time rather than space, giving rather than requiring, freed to embrace calling, wholeness, and the world. Be that I think the Lord has a word for us today to be encouraged as Jesus' friends. The first is time, second is giving, and lastly, wholeness. I think each of these will help us to know how to rest better this week and hopefully for a long time thereafter. First, uh, when we abide in love, we embrace time. Now, what's that mean? Well, Don explains that we must develop an objective perspective to assess the quality of our days. This perspective has many aspects, but one of the foremost is that deliberate decision to focus on events in time with persons rather than using time to acquire and accomplish things. See, embracing time is about learning to be in the moment. And the reason this is a spiritual practice of abiding in love and not some modern life hack is because it requires a heart change. This is not just a new habit. This is understanding your new heart. See, when we operate as servants rather than friends, we are prone to see our days through tasks and through money, and we miss people, don't we? People are inconsequential when you're hustling. They sort of are just other tools to use to get things done. Am I preaching to you yet, or is this just me? Maybe it's just me. We don't see people. We focus, rather, we don't focus on events in time with persons. But this was the ministry of Jesus, wasn't it? Jesus laid down, presumably, tasks that he had to perform that day when someone, like, just touches his cloak. He's like, wait a minute. I felt power leave me. Who needs a minute? This is our Lord. This is who he is to us cosmically. We are those in need. Therefore, learning to rest is about learning to see people. Learning to love others is learning to orient our days and perspectives around our brothers and sisters rather than around our ambitions and our goals. Recently, my wife sent me an episode of one of her favorite podcasts, Typology. It's an Enneagram podcast, so if that's your thing, then praise God. Um, 
But his guest was a pastor and author, A.J. Sherrill, and it struck me, it stuck with me rather. Sherrill explained his propensity to walk in a room and only think about himself and what he needs to accomplish in this room and just going, I'm going to be great today. These people, it's so good of them to be here because they're going to see something awesome from me. I've had to repent of that. And I heard him articulating that. And I just said, Lord, help me. People become inconsequential. And so what Cheryl is learning, and now, by God's grace, what I am attempting to grow in is to walk in a room and instead of saying, here I am, to say, there you are. I don't know about you, but so many rooms I walk into and I go, here I am, you're welcome. It's going to get better now. Instead of saying, there you are, what do you need? What's going on in your life? I bet you're so interesting. I bet you have so much wisdom to offer. I bet you will love me well. I bet you'll take care of me. I bet you could meet a need I have, right? It's a completely different approach. In other words, he's learning and I'm learning. I hope you are too, to abide in love and embrace time. We learn to love one another by being with others as God in Christ is with us. Secondly, When we abide in love, we embrace giving. This is a gospel reorientation. Only Jesus transforms us from consumers to givers, from enemies to friends. Dawn continues to write. She says, The proclamation of the gospel, the faith that God's love frees us to love, is made more credible when it is tangibly accomplished by works of love and obedience to God's commandment, or rather covenant instructions to care for the needy. I think this happens because the more I'm grounded in God's love and care, the less I fear about losing money and giving away possessions and the less I think only about my own well-being. I know he's got me, my family. He's got my community. He's got my friends. I trust him, not my stuff. And so I give it away freely. Our possessions become instruments of showing the world. See, when we abide in love, something different happens to us. It takes us to Sabbath. And Sabbath teaches us contentment by encouraging us to embrace our being as loved children rather than embrace stuff as consumers that believe their well-being is determinate of the latest widget, the latest phone, the latest device, the latest life hack, whatever it might be. My being does not come from consuming more but actually resting more in the one who loved me. See, when we learn to abide in love, I think we embrace giving without fear. We learn to love one another by sharing what God has actually entrusted to us. Lastly, when we abide in love, we embrace wholeness. In Hebrew, the word for peace is shalom, but like many English words, it doesn't even scratch the surface of the Hebrew consciousness as it relates to the word shalom. Shalom is about wholeness. It's about reconciliation with God and one another. Shalom is about inward health, contentment, trust, tranquility. And to this day, Jewish people greet one another with this simple and powerful sentiment, shalom. Peace, wholeness, health, well-being. And Don explains that Sabbath is meant to help us find wholeness in a fractured world. She says the Sabbath rhythm enables us to integrate all the scattered parts of ourself into a whole. I love that. Slowing down once a week is meant to help us collect our thoughts, collect our feelings, collect our experiences, our failings, to take stock of our needs and our longings, 
to find out that actually the expectations I've been putting on my children or my colleagues or my friends are things that only the Lord can provide. I begin to collect all of these things, my loves, my hurts, and I bring them to the Lord for his healing and clarifying power. And saying, Lord, will you put me back together again this week? The old saying was, it's a time to let your soul catch up to your body. To make God take care of you. Learning to let God take care of us. See, when we abide in love, I think that's what we're doing. We're embracing wholeness. When we learn to love one another by allowing God to love us, he puts us back together every week so that we truly live with shalom, with wholeness, with peace. This does not mean that nothing agitates us again, right? Saturday morning after my Sabbath, sometimes I wake up and it's like, ah, I'm already but there's this disposition that was recultivated that I know that's off of center. I know that's not shalom. I know that's not of the Lord. And it cultivates a mindset of an ability to recognize the Lord better, more clearly, and more exactly. See, embracing time and giving in wholeness that enables us to do what? What Jesus said, to love one another. I can't love one another if they're merely a tool for me to use. I can't love the one another's if I'm not going to be generous toward them, but I only look at them to be generous to me. I can't love one another if I'm not whole and I'm making them do something for me that only God can. It helps us to live, I think, sacrificially and vulnerably as Jesus has loved us. This is ultimately what it's like to be his friend. Because you can come into this, thanks David, you can come into this relationship and have no fear of rejection. No fear every week of going... I made a mess of it again. I didn't do the tasks again. I fell short again. I wasn't a very good friend again. I wasn't very obedient again. And he's like, your performance wasn't the reason I made you a friend in the first place. It's because I freed you. It's because I loved you. Let's put you back together again. Let's find shalom again. See, someone who has been freed by love, someone who now becomes free to love like that. The expectation and judgment I may have for my neighbor is gone. Why? Because it's not on me. Someone who actually knows the master, knows his heart, and knows his love. That's the person who can rest. So, Heavenly Father, we ask for your help. We ask that you would help us to be a people who are truly at rest. Not because all of the work is done or we've completed all of our tasks. Help us to rest because we're free. Help us to rest because we're your friend. Help us to rest because we're loved. Help us to do that, Father, so that ultimately our worship would be right. It would be in spirit and in truth. Not only as we sing in the gathering and reflect on your word, but as we go about our week, would we be a people who are truly at rest and truly worship you as a living sacrifice. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.